Turn to Matthew chapter 2, if you would. If you don't have a Bible, these folks that are walking down the aisle will give you one. Just raise your hand, and they'll hand it to you. Matthew chapter 2. Before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I just want to tell you, when you hear the word gospel, like, you know, Brett was saying, you know, the gospel, the gospel. It, it's from a Greek word, means ulangelion, which means the good news. The good news is there's a God in heaven who loves you, and, and he's come to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, all of your sins. Sin means missing the mark. It, 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 I just don't want you to hear Christianese and not know what, what's going on. It just means good news. That's what gospel means. Amen? Now, by the way, amen doesn't mean let's eat. <laughs> amen means true, right? It's, it's a, okay, good. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 2. I'm actually going to teach through the whole uh, chapter, but I'm not going to make you stand for it because you just look exhausted, and I'm not going to make you do that. Let me pick up at verse 1. By the way, Matthew, remember he's a publican tax collector. He's got ends in the government. You're going to see a side of this story that no other gospel writer has because he's connected with government. He's going to see this secret meeting between Herod and the wise men because uh, he has in to the, to the local government there. Uh, he's also the one that de- de- depicted the, the guards falling down as dead uh, when the angel appeared at the tomb. And the reason why is because he had a connection with the Roman soldiers because he had detachment with him when he would collect taxes. So really cool insights from Matthew. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter two, verse one. Now after the day, excuse me, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And he quotes out of Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. He's a lying murderer, by the way. When they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Interesting star. We'll cover that in a moment. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's why we think there's only three wise men. There was actually probably over a hundred. They just had three gifts. I'll tell you that in a moment. You're going to be really smart at the end of this. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And I'm going to stop there and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for this picture of these wise men, these astrologers. And Lord, I pray as your, your word is living and breathing and it speaks to us, I pray that you do that today, that you comfort and encourage and bless those who are present. Help us, Lord, to understand what it is you'd have for us and we'd be obedient to apply it. As Mary said when she was told that she was pregnant with the Christ child, she said, let it be unto me according to thy word. And she even called herself a bondservant. And so, Lord, we say the same. Let it be unto us according to your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, please be seated. This is an interesting uh, time in history, one that 
a lot of scholars just basically dismiss. Um, a number of them just say it never occurred. I mean, really, if you think about it, how does a star follow? How does a star go in, in such a, a way that it would accomplish what it's doing here? And I have to share with you, um, last Christmas, I came across a book that deeply uh, blessed me. It's uh, by Colin Nichol. It's called The Great Christ Comet. Now, it's a difficult read, but it reads like a, a mystery novel, and uh, it's fascinating. And there aren't a lot of books out there that gra- grab you like this book did for me. I, I'd encourage you to read it. It's called The Great Christ Comet. The reason why it's so spectacular is because this, um, this author uh, argues that the uh, star of Bethlehem wasn't a star. It was instead, an, or in fact, a comet, a comet. And it was undeniably the single greatest comet in the history of the world. We heard Haley's Comet, and, right? Haley Bop Comet, or all those things. Well, and we, we know that it, it appears at, at cyclical times in the history of, of the world, these comets. And this, this comet, they call it the Great Christ Comet, um, is he lays out a case so fascinating for it that you're, you're left with evidence that blows your mind. And he does it through biblical exegesis, which means taking out of Scripture to see what this is. And what's fascinating is that most people declare it to have been a star, not a comet. Others say it's an aligning, a triple conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and Pisces in 7 BC. Uh, others think that it's a meteor. And, and you say, well, how could it be a comet, and yet the Bible calls it a star? Well, okay, let me help you with something. What do we call a meteor re-entering the Earth's atmosphere? A shooting star. It's not a star. It's a, it's a meteor. It's lighting up, but our vernacular calls it a shooting star. It's the same term that they would use. And so here, in, in, instead of it being a star or an alignment of planets or anything along those lines or a meteor, he declares that it's, uh, it's not even a phenomenon of a visit, a, a visit of an angel. People just think it's an orb of an angel. <laughs> it's not. It's 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 It's... And others just dismiss it as a myth. Skeptics just dismiss it. Well, what's so fascinating about this book, and I encourage you to read it, is he uses the, the gospel, historical gospel account of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, to point out that this is a comet. He argues, and I wrote this down, he argues that a comet can account for the star's seemingly erratic behavior appearing first in the eastern morning sky, then months later in the western and southern evening skies. It almost seems as though the star's moving and, and, and you're, you're fascinated by it. And these wise men, who we'll cover in a moment, um, they, 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 de- they detect what this is based on biblical exegesis. And, and you'll know this in a second when I show you this, but he uses up to the date, and, and he does this in the book, and he, he uses modern-day applications that you can find on any computer, you know, apps, and he, he does this, it's, a, it's an astronomy software that's accessible to us on the internet. You can do this as you read the book. He's able to reconstruct the nighttime sky in the past and project it for the future. And he runs the numbers and concludes that the star of Bethlehem must have been a very particular kind of comet. And this is how it's defined because he's, he studies astrology. A narrowly inclined retrograde long period comet that around the time of its close, uh, perihelion, rose heliolically and thereafter cross the sun-earth line to be on the western and eventually the southern side of the earth. So he's describing astrological terms so you can see what this comet is doing. And you'll see it in the book, and he'll outline it for you. I, I, I'm doing the best I can. You have to do your own homework. Feed me, Seymour. Do your own work, okay? 
Such a comment could account for a seemingly erratic behavior that you see in, in the book of Matthew that we've read, but this is cool. In fact, its behavior was not erratic at all, but rather the predictable movement of a heavenly body along a predefined trajectory. And, and this, is what, this is what compels us. Why would the Magi, these wise men, interpret a comment as signifying the one to be born king of the Jews that we see in Matthew 2.2? Why, why would they look at this, these, these Chaldeans traveling from Babylon, 550 miles away, why would they look at this in the night sky and go, oh, <laughs> the king of the, the universe, the king of creation, the king of the Jews is being born. I mean, you, you, a lot, everyone in the room would be hard-pressed to find the North Star tonight. We don't look up anymore. We're always looking down. You could probably find an apple. Boop, there it is. But you have no idea to follow, you know, the Big Dipper and the last two there, and there's a North Star, and you can guide yourself. You learned that in Boy Scouts. Don't know that, do you? You, you, you? Could you find Orion? Can you find Pisces? Can you find Taurus? Can you see the night sky? Can you? No. Do you know what planets are and the difference between planets and stars? And people struggle with this, but these Chaldeans were astrologers. And they, they look at this sign, and they go, wait, this, this is the one who has been born king of the Jews. This is the sign. And it's being done by a comet. Now, he points out this this interpretation of the Magi. He says, um, it is in Revelation 12, verses 1 through 5, a passage depicting a war in heaven between a woman clothed with the sun and an enormous red dragon. Commentators have long noted this is the depiction of cosmic warfare between good and evil. And he says, and and I'll read this to you. This is is out of uh, Revelation 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven... A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And it goes on in the other verses, and you'll see this. And there's a war going on with a dragon. You're like, whoa, this guy was on some sort of funky drugs. Well, that's John on the island of Patmos, this vision God's given him. And and he takes, the the author takes Revelation 12.1, and he sees sees an astrological sign where you can see Virgo and you can, you can start to depict the night sky. And this is, this is what he does. In other words, it describes an alignment of the stars at the particular point in time with constellations Virgo being the sign of the woman, Virgo being the sign of the woman. And, and he uses Revelation 12.1 to help us arrive at this date. And here's what he does. September 15th, 6 BC, according to his astronomy software, on this date, the sun making its way through Virgo was located over her womb, while the moon was under Virgo's feet, okay? This was also the date of the Jewish New Year, which Babylonian astrologers would have known because of the Jewish diaspora in that region. And if a comet appeared in Virgo's midsection or womb after this time, the astrologers might have interpreted it as one of an omen of a royal Judean birth. And the author says this, the Magi probably came to the conclusion that the great leader whose birth was being so dramatically announced in the heavens was a Messiah based on a number of key prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. Now, before I get to those and start to teach in a greater depth of the passage today, I want to share with you how these guys got educated. They're Chaldeans. We call them wise men, but that's not the best description of them. The same word used in, in, in Hebrew for what they use here is better interpreted of what you'd find in Daniel chapter 2, verse 2, or Daniel chapter 2, verse 10. And in, in these passages of Scripture, especially Daniel chapter 2, 
uh, it says, the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. Daniel was one of these astrologers. He was one of these uh, folks appointed to the court to give wisdom and insight to the king of, of Babylon. And this is what a wise man was. And it was an, an astrologer. It was a Chaldean. And it was believed that he became, Daniel himself, that when you study the story about Daniel, he became the head of these, these Chaldeans, these astrologers, these quote-unquote wise men. Daniel chapter 2, verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on the earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such a thing of any astrologer or Chaldean. But Daniel came up with the answer, and the king said, you're in charge, buddy. So Daniel now teaches all of these Chaldeans how to read the night sky. And the scripture says that the heavens speak of the glory of the Lord. And they can look out at the night sky and you can see all creation speaks of the glory of God. So Daniel's pointing this out. And if you, you struggle and you go, I'm not so sure. Daniel was a contemporary. He understood Isaiah. Isaiah had these messianic texts. And this, listen to this. This is Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hundreds of years before Christ is born and and a declaration that a virgin would give birth, which is, you know, hello. Okay. It's written and and it comes to fruition and they're looking for this sign. What is a sign? It will give you a sign. Isaiah 9. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has shined. They're they're seeing this and they're blown away. Daniel wrote of himself. He wrote in Daniel chapter 7, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. You go even further and you look at Daniel 9 verse, uh, verse 25 and in that, it says, Now therefore, uh, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. What happens here is Daniel starts, uh, uh, he, he puts a timeline in Daniel nine twenty five. He says, when the decree goes forward to rebuild Jerusalem, which had been ransacked and all of these Jews had been a diaspora, it means a, a, a dispersing, all these Jews are brought into Babylon. They're all struggling. He's lost his family as a young boy. He's castrated. He's put into the king's court. Uh, they, they teach him to, to speak Chaldean. Uh, he's taken from his family. His family was probably murdered. And all these Jews are trying to figure out they're in exile in Babylon. Their, their entire country's been wiped out. And God says, listen, Daniel, when the decree goes forward to rebuild the wall at that point, this, this amount of time, and he pointed out, he says 70 weeks and 62 weeks, and you laid out, I don't have time to go through the calculations. When the decree goes forward, there will be 178,441 days from the decree going forward until the Messiah comes. You calculate that in. And the Messiah comes to Jerusalem, 171,000 or 178,000, 144 days. You know what that was? It was when Jesus steps forward and, he, and he's weeping over the city. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, had you not known this day, your, today, this, this year, your day? He'd come to the, to the exact moment. Prophetically speaking, he's walking into Jerusalem. They're saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Daniel knew all of this. 
he lays it out and he is, he's looking for every sign, training these guys. And, and, and the, the, the declarations, if you look in the Talmud and, you, and you, you look in the Mishnah and you look through all of these different areas of Scripture, it boils down to this, this idea that there was over 500 messianic prophecies of, of, of the coming of the Messiah. Jews were waiting for it. Or at least they should have been waiting for it. Instead, these Chaldeans, these non-Jews, these pagans, travel 550 miles because they see the sign in the eastern sky, right? And they say, the king, the one born king of the Jews, the king of all the universe, Emmanuel, God with us, God taking on flesh. He's been born to a woman, to a virgin. They travel 550 miles for this. And, and here you see in Matthew chapter 2, it's not mystical, it's not, it's not a, I'm sure it's, it's not a myth. You can dismiss it, but it's real. And as I look at this, these folks came 550 miles at great expense and time to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And not only at great expense and time, but also of their dignity. You see, these guys would travel. They were very wealthy, and they would travel with bodyguards. They were princes, astrologers, high in the, the kingdom. And here they descend upon Bethlehem, which is a town estimated at the time to have about 5,000 people in it. It was a backwater, derelict town. 5,000 people max. And this caravan comes riding in, and, and these wise men, these astrologers, these Chaldeans enter into Jerusalem first saying, there has got to be a celebration because the one born king of the Jews has arrived. They must be celebrating. And he gets to Jerusalem and they go to meet with the leader who is a Idomean, his name's Herod. They come to meet and there's nothing happening. And they're going, wait a minute, your king has been born and nobody's celebrating? Are we in the wrong location? And Herod hears that this entourage has arrived, hundreds and hundreds of, you know, bring them to the palace. And they come to, to inquire and they, they, they ask. And, and Herod looks and he's wondering. So he summons the scribes and the religious leaders who are the Jews that should know the scriptures. Over 500 depictions of the Messiah written in, in the Mishnah and the Targum and others. And it says here, they ask Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Certainly you would know, wouldn't you? You're the ruler. He's been born. We've seen the sign. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. We've come to worship him. We didn't come to, we're not here because we need anything. We've come to give our lives to him. And Herod the king heard this. He was troubled. He was troubled. He, you know why he's troubled? And, and it says that all Jerusalem with him was troubled. Herod was four foot four inches tall. He was like a little Napoleon. I'll get to get him. I'll show you. And he, had a, he did. He had, a serious, he had a serious complex. If any of you are four feet four inches tall, no big deal. You're just not ruler uh, you know, with the struggles. He had struggles, and I'll tell you why. Height isn't the issue. For him, it was. Some of the smallest people I've ever known, the biggest people I've ever known, but not him. Caesar said of Herod, 
because he declared himself to be an idiomian, which means he didn't eat pork. He kind of observed the Jewish dietary laws. He had 10, sons, he had 10 wives, and he killed them all. His favorite wife, he, he strangled to death. Favorite. He killed his kids. He killed his kids. And Caesar said of him, it would be better to be a pig in Caesar's household than his son in Herod's household because he wouldn't kill pigs, but he'd kill his children. He was a great builder. He built one of the, ancient, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Herodian temple. You can still see the remains still today in Jerusalem. I've been there. And he hears from this entourage of princes who represent great wealth and power that there is a new king who has been born and he's troubled. And it says all of Jerusalem's troubled. You know why? Because when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And, and this has been a hard week. I've, 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 I've come to a, a struggle, quite honestly. And I don't know if you follow any of this, but I, I've been kind of lit up in uh, the local paper. And, and I've, I've, been, I've been attacked. I don't know if that's a strong enough word. I've been a key, I don't know even how to describe it. Apparently, you, they define the issue as this. A pastor has no business being in public office. That's, that's the declaration. It's, it's two weeks in a row now that this is the statement in the letters. Pastor has no business being in political office. And, and they go along to declare this. Now, my, my question is why? Well, because you are going to legislate your morality. Yes, I am. But here's the question. Well, you can't legislate morality. Every law you've ever made is somebody's values being legislated. Somebody's convictions are being applied. Yes, but you, you can't proselytize. I don't. I've never proselytized a day in my life from the dais. Proselytize means trying to convince people of your faith to have them become a Christian. I don't, I don't make Christians. God does. My job is to live to represent him. And, and I'm thinking, when have I ever done that from the dais? I haven't. But I'm accused of it. And then they bring this other issue in that I'm, I'm pro-life and I speak in opposition to abortion. Uh, yeah, I do. But that is not permitted from the dais. Well, first of all, I haven't done it from the dais, but why is it not permitted? You see, Herod, Herod was upset. He was troubled, and so was all of Jerusalem. And that baby is for me. <laughs> and you scared it. Now you've made the baby cry. That wasn't my fault. Let's <laughs> just stop and listen to this. Come on, cry some more, please. <laughs> that is a precious gift. Herod declared... In verse 13 of chapter 2, 
An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring word that for Herod will seek the young child to destroy it. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, departed Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. That's Hosea 11. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all and in all its districts from two years old and under. So from birth to two years of age, Herod killed all the boys. He did it in Bethlehem and all the outlying regions. On Bethlehem, about 5,000 people. So scholars believe it was anywhere from 100 to 1,000 boys murdered by Herod. Let me ask you, from birth to two years of age, would you consider it immoral to kill a child? Hello? I would hope so. If you consider anything to be wrong or immoral, then you have a value system. And my question is, from birth to two years of age, it's immoral. Why all of a sudden in the womb is it now permissible? Why can't we have this conversation? I, I, because I stand for the life. Now, when a sperm and an egg come together, a zygote's created, and something's alive. Something's alive. So you're washing your dishes at the sink. We have a pretty picture of Mount Boney from our kitchen window. And if your child comes up from behind you and says, Daddy, can I kill this? You say, what is it? It's a black widow. Yeah, step on it. I don't even have to turn around. Just crush that thing. Just stomp on it. Daddy, it's a, it's a brown recluse. Be very careful, but kill that too. And, and step, it's my little brother. Time out. Daniel, get your hands off the throat of Michael. They he's never done that. All right. Here's the question that we aren't having. What is it? It's not a baby. Why? And, now, and, and let's have that conversation. But for me to have that conversation, I'm told in the, in the paper that I'm responsible for the burning of the Planned Parenthood because I, I, I asked the question, what is it? And now I'm responsible for the burning of Planned Parenthood, but we come to find out later after I've been you know, accused of being responsible for that, it was the disgruntled boyfriend of an employee at the Planned Parenthood. And no retraction, no apology. You see, here's, here's the struggle, folks. And this is what I'm struggling with. Kings like Herod do not want Christ to be interfering with their government. And I have a king. And these Chaldeans travel 550 miles to worship the one born king of the Jews at great expense to themselves, money, time, and their dignity. And I worship Jesus Christ, and I'm not ashamed of that. He is my king, and he is my Lord. And I am submitted to him. And you know what that brings? It's an attack on my dignity. You're going to be ridiculed as a fool and an idiot 
in a postmodern world, anyone who has faith is not permitted in a government sector. Now, I say this to you because nowhere are we called to step in to proselytize. But if you're going to make decisions on behalf of a community, you're going to be governed by a set of rules internally. I am governed by the Lord. And the fascinating thing about the Lord is he's a God of love and peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering. He would want that none would perish, but that all would be saved. And I know when I'm worshiping him and doing right by him, because here's the thing, the people who attack you, he loves them. And he doesn't allow you to be angry with them. He doesn't allow you to hate them. He doesn't allow you to get angry. You see, in God's economy, there's no enemies, only opportunities. And when you make it personal, you're not representing him and you're not worshiping him. That's the hardest part about public office for me. I will be accused of my faith dismissing me from having access to public office. But yet one of the greatest struggles in our, in our state is pensions, and yet we have two folks in, in government positions. One is a retired police detective and another is a, a fire chief. Are they not permitted to speak because they have a vested interest? We all have things that govern us. Mine happens to be the Lord. I represent him, but I'm to represent him well. And if I treat those who mistreat me inappropriately and with anger and vitriol, I'm not serving the Lord. This is a great challenge for us because the Herods of the world do not want Jesus Christ messing with their government. But guess what? You can't take away the fact that I believe and will always say from this dais and in my own personal life, Is it a baby in the womb? You bet it is. It is a human being to be protected. I don't apologize for that. I will logically defend it. And you can ridicule me and take away my dignity. But I serve a higher master who has created us in his image. And he is declared by this massive comet, this heavenly body, one of the most compelling movements of all of history, that folks would travel 550 miles to worship the one declared to be king of the Jews. Herod wants him dead. And what's fascinating is he gathers the chief priests and the scribes of the people together and he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said, of course, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And he quotes out of Micah 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are the least among the rulers of Judah. He says, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men together, so he calls these astrologers, kicks out the priests and, and the Levites, and he calls in these astrologers and he has a private meeting with them. He doesn't want them muddling up the waters, these Jews. They've got their religious deal. I want to hold my throne. And he kicks them out and he turns to these astrologers. He says, so uh, 
Can you tell me about the time this star appeared? I need to know the age of this child. You see, go and search carefully for this child, and when you find him, you come back to me and bring me word that I may come and worship him also. That's, he's going to kill him. He's a lying murderer doing anything to protect his office. Here we are in the most rancorous, raucous presidential debates in our nation's history. It is vile. I'm sickened by every bit of it. Churchill, Winston Churchill used to say, in Europe, politics was all about power, and in America, it was the seeking of truth. He says, but that's changed now because of the three segments of our government, executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government, the judicial branch used to be the weakest. Their only job is they weren't to legislate, they were to, inter- they were to declare whether they violated the legislation set up by the legislature. But now we've moved it that the judicial system is now the legislative body of the government. And they're appointed for life. And we are fighting for power to see who appoints them. That's where we've come. We're no longer a constitutional republic in one sense because we've given so much power to one branch of government. So what are we doing? We, we will keep power at all costs. And it's vicious and awful. I'm sickened by it. It's sad. And it's, it's no longer about civility and kindness. We now attack character and go right for the jugular of another human being and, and, and just tear them apart. And here we are. And Herod wants to hold that power. And the world is fighting for that power. And don't you even think for a minute that you're going to infuse Christ in any of that. And to make sure of it, we're going to kill all children from birth to two years of age. You tell me where they are if you want to have a place in my government. And so, when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till they came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They traveled 550 miles, and the priests, the ones who headed up all the temples and the churches, the religious folks, they wouldn't travel seven miles. They come at great expense to themselves, time, money, and dignity, and they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The church in America, you go, you know, I don't even want, I, we got 30 minutes of music, we got time. It's kind of the warm-up before the sermon. And I don't want to get there when they pass that offering back, which we never do, but I don't want to get there when they pass that offering back. And in yawning, and I'm not picking on you, I'm talking about in America, not here. <laughs> And how many people prepare the night before to come and worship the Lord? It's almost like, oh, gosh, Sunday. Well, I hope he gets out because there's football. I get it. I'll, Sundays is for Jesus and football. My, my wife has a shirt that says that. So I go, well, I'm leaving the church then. Oh, good. Don't let that door hit you on the way out. But the question is here, these guys travel 550 miles. If I were to tell you that Jesus Christ on Friday is going to appear at the Oaks Mall, I think there'd be a line. I think we'd be there. I would hope so. But if you have hundreds of years of prophecy written in your own scriptures 
by your own leaders. And here's what happened. The church got comfortable with the horizontal. They had the big temple and they had all the relationships and they had the political connections and they had everything happening that they forgot the vertical. And when he appears, they didn't even know it. And I think the church has been so content with the size of our budgets and our buildings and our baptisms that we've forgotten our king. We're impressed with what our hands have built, not with the God we serve, or I should say called to serve. We have idols in the church. And, and they've, they've caused us that not only will we not travel seven miles to Bethlehem, we won't even go, we won't even go to the ballot box. Because somebody may align me with this Christ child. And I don't want Herod to hate me. And this is what happens. I'm almost finished. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child and with Mary, his mother. And by the way, young child means about two years of age, not a baby anymore. And they fell down and they worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. One is for a king, another is embalming fluid. It's, it's interesting, each of these gifts are for the portions of his life. You, you don't see that at the moment, but they're fascinating gifts. And they're very valuable. And it's good timing because Mary and Joseph are so poor that when they went to the temple to dedicate Jesus in the temple, they had to bring the offering of the, of the poorest, which was two turtle doves. They didn't have any money. And, and then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, these astrologers, these Chaldeans, departed for their own country another way. They weren't going to let Herod in on it. When they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. I'm digging this about Joseph. He has a really cool ministry. God speaks to him when he's sleeping. Honey, I cannot, I cannot mow the lawn. I have got to listen for the Lord. <laughs> Did he speak to you? No, but I feel great. <laughs> When's lunch? <laughs> They had departed, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So you can imagine Joseph going and going, Mary, we've got to get out of here. We've got to leave. What do you mean leave? This is my house. This is, I, this is my nest. We've got to go. Where? We're going to go to Egypt. No, we're Jews. We don't go to Egypt. We came out of Egypt. Remember prison? And the, we can't. No. We're not, why there? We have to go now. I, are you sure? Listen, Mary, you weren't giving me grief when the angel of the Lord told me that you were pregnant, you know, by the Lord. Remember that? And I was all worried, you know, what have you been doing, Mary? You know, you never gave me any grief about that one. You're like, oh, yes, it was an angel of the Lord. I was all, I was in, remember? I was going to put you out quietly, but I was all in, right? I heard from the same angel. Are you sure it was the same angel? What did he look like? Mary, pack your things. We've got to go. Let's get out of here. This is upsetting me. I just, oh, mm, no, you can't take. What can I take then? I was just feeling it for a second there. Herod's going to kill Jesus. He's going to kill our baby. And mamas, we have to go. Nobody's killed my baby. She picks up Jesus, wraps him up. And what do they grab? Limited. Well, let's take the gold. And the frankincense. 
and the myrrh. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And they strap it on the beast of burden, they head down there. It takes 80 miles to get to the border of Egypt, another 200 miles across the delta into Alexandria, where there were 1.1 million Jews that ended up there, and even had a temple in Alexandria after the diaspora, after Babylon, Daniel. And they, they reside there, and they go down to Egypt, and then... Verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he goes and kills all these children. They're lamenting. A voice was heard in Ramah. And they're all crying as a result of it. Lamentations, weeping, great mourning, because they were no more. Then Herod was dead. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph again. And Mary's like, when do we get to go back? I haven't heard from the Lord yet. I'm going to need another nap. Is it time yet? I still haven't heard from him. Go get me a sandwich, woman. (laughs) It's an interesting marriage. But the Lord speaks to him, arise, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, Archelaus was Herod's last remaining son. He'd killed all the others. He actually, five days before he was to die, he died at 70, five days before he was to die, he got permission from Caesar to kill his other son, because he felt as though he was going to try to steal the kingdom. And And... Archelaus finally gets it, and he hates his dad. He's like, as a matter of fact, the night that Herod died, Archelaus was drunk and rejoicing his father was passing. And he was just as evil and as awful as his father. And so the angel warns him again in a dream, and he turned aside in the region of Galilee. And God used this because, it might, because he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Every prophet fulfilled. These guys are raging and they think they own it and I'm gonna get my dad back. And God's like, move that chess piece and move that chess piece and prophecies fulfilled. And prophecies fulfilled. And prophecies fulfilled. I don't believe the Bible. Well, you haven't read it. Prophecy fulfilled. (laughs) I guess we conclude by just... This comet discloses the identity, nature, destiny, and general location of this newborn child. One man wants to kill, and others travel great distance to worship. And according to their Nichols astronomical, astrological calculations, this comet would have descended below Virgo, on October 20th, 6 BC, suggesting the actual birth of the royal baby. Today's October 23rd. You guys are going, Jesus was born on the 25th. I never believed that. You can believe what you want. I. Why would the Romans do a census in the dead of winter? And here's another one. October 20th was Sukkot, Festival of Booths. Sukkot, interestingly enough, is at harvest season. And everybody gathers in the main cities to celebrate. Great time to take a census. And according to all this alignment, there it is. And, and you know, October 20th, 6 BC, you calculate all these things, you look at it, and then I would add this. My mother was dying of lung cancer. 
I had never lost a parent before. Now I've lost two. And I remember when she was dying, I was outside the ICU and only a couple of people could go in at a time. And I was waiting for my turn. And she'd be dead within a couple of days. And we all knew it. And our family deals with grief through humor. And so I'm, I'm in the waiting room and I'm playing on my phone just trying to avoid the inevitable and I come across a conception calendar. Don't ask me how I got there. And it says, type in your birthday and you get to find out when you were conceived, when your parents got busy. So I type in my birthday and boop, date pops up. I'm like, well, let's see what that reflects on history. It's like, hey, that's when Kennedy was shot. So now it's my turn to go in. I'm thinking, well, oh, it's a good time to ask that question. And my mom's got this fighter pilot mask on, this blowing oxygen. And, you know, just like this. And I go, Mom, I was playing with the conception calendar. It says I was conceived when Kennedy was shot. She goes, we were the last in the country to know. <laughs> You're like, hell, <laughs> delete, you know. Quite a weekend, <laughs> you know. My point is this. I've always believed that around Christmas time, we celebrate was not the birth of Christ, but the conception of Christ. Michael Mass, Saturnalia, all these things align with this. And, and Jesus was born at Sukkot. Why? Because they called him Emmanuel. He tabernacled, tented with us. He took on flesh, this temporary dwelling place, and he tabernacled with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And you just look at these, these things and, and you marvel. My question is, what does it do for you? Do you worship him or do you want him out of government? Do you submit even if it means being humiliated in your dignity, being questioned and abused? To worship him, does it cost you anything? Or do you only come to church to get something? These folks travel 550 miles to give and to fall down. Listen, between now and Christmas, we got a chance to prepare our heart to worship the Lord and enjoy a Christmas like we've never known before. Every time you step foot here, we are coming like the Magi, and we have seen that sign, and we have read that scripture, and we are coming to worship the one who has been born King of the Jews. He's worthy of our worship. And I am so blessed by this passage, and I have to tell you, it so encouraged me this week. I pray it did the same for you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, for the patience of folks that just have never really even investigated the scriptures, but today have come and just put on their thinking caps and have entertained things they've never thought before. And Lord, something so familiar as the Christmas story and the Magi, the wise men, and then seeing the, the evil of Herod and realizing, God, we want to worship you, not destroy you. For God can't be destroyed. And Lord, you say you're either for me or against me. But I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. And Lord, you came. The good news is you left heaven to come to earth to be tempted in all ways as we have been tempted, but yet we have indulged in those temptations and we have sinned, we've fallen short. But you came to be tempted, and yet you are without sin. 
because the wages of sin is death, and you've come that we might live and you would die in our place. And that's what you did. You were born to die. and You were crucified. You paid the penalty for the violation of our failure. And you say, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. We receive that salvation by believing that Jesus, you are our Messiah. You are our Savior. You came that we might live. You died in our place. And by faith we receive that. And that's the good news. That the God of all creation forgives and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And we have a right standing with you, Lord. What a blessing. That is good news. And I pray, Lord, as we approach Christmas, that we would yield our lives powerfully to your kingdom and not be ashamed. And like the wise men, the Chaldeans, no matter what it costs us, we will worship you. And so, Lord, thank you for the privilege to be in such a wonderful city and to have such wonderful blessings upon our life. Encourage your people now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.